state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery. Without the experience of opposition in mortality, all things must needs be a compound in one, in which there would be no happiness or misery. Therefore, Father Lehi continued, after God had created all things, to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, it must needs be that there was an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one being bitter, or the one being sweet, and the other bitter. His teaching on this plan, part of the plan of salvation concludes with these words, quote, Behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. Opposition in the difficult circumstances we face in mortality is also part of the plan that furthers our growth in mortality. All of us experience oppositions that test us. Some of these tests are temptations to sin. Some are mortal challenges apart from personal sin. Some are very great. Some are minor. Some are continuous. Some are mere episodes. None of us is exempt. Opposition permits us to grow toward what our Heavenly Father would have us become. After Joseph Smith had completed translating the Book of Mormon, he still had to find a publisher. This was not easy. The complexity of this lengthy manuscript and the cost of printing and binding thousands of copies were intimidating. Joseph first approached E.B. Grandin, a Palmyra printer, who refused. He then sought another printer in Palmyra, who also turned him down. He traveled to Rochester, 25 miles away, and approached the most prominent publisher in western New York, who also turned him down. Another Rochester publisher was willing, but circumstances made this alternative unacceptable. Weeks had passed, and Joseph must have been bewildered at the opposition to accomplishing his divine mandate. The Lord did not make it easy, but he did make it possible. Joseph's fifth attempt, a second approach to the Palmyra publisher Grandin, was successful. Years later, Joseph was painfully imprisoned in Liberty Jail for many months. When he prayed for relief, the Lord told him that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. We are all acquainted with other kinds of mortal opposition not caused by our personal sins, including illness, disability, and death. President Thomas S. Monson explained, quote, Some of you may at times have cried out in your suffering, wondering why our Heavenly Father would allow you to go through whatever trials you are facing. Our mortal life, however, was never meant to be easy or consistently pleasant. Our Heavenly Father knows that we learn and grow and become refined through hard challenges, heartbreaking sorrows, and difficult choices. Each one of us experiences dark days when loved ones pass away, 
painful times when our health is lost, feelings of being forsaken when those we love seem to have abandoned us. These and other trials present us with the real test of our ability to endure. End of quote. Our efforts to improve our observance of the Sabbath day pose a less stressful example of opposition. We have the Lord's commandment to honor the Sabbath. Some of our choices may violate that commandment. But other choices in how to spend time on the Sabbath are simply a question of whether we will do what is merely good or what is better or best. To illustrate the opposition of temptation, the Book of Mormon describes three methods the devil will use in the last days. First, he will rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. Second, he will pacify and lull members away into carnal security, saying, Zion prospereth, all is well. Third, he will tell us, There is no hell, and I am no devil, for there is none, and therefore there is no right and wrong. Because of this opposition, we are warned not to be at ease in Zion. The Church in its divine mission, and we in our personal lives, seem to face increasing opposition today. Perhaps as the Church grows in strength and we members grow in faith and obedience, Satan increases the strength of his opposition, so we will continue to have opposition in all things. Some of this opposition even comes from Church members. Some who use personal reasoning or wisdom to resist prophetic direction give themselves a label borrowed from elected bodies, the loyal opposition. However appropriate for a democracy, there's no warrant for this concept in the government of God's kingdom, where questions are honored but opposition is not. As another example, there are many things in our early Church history, such as what Joseph Smith did or did not do in every circumstance, that some use as a basis for opposition. To all, I say, exercise faith and put reliance on the Savior's teaching that we should know them by their fruits. The Church is making great efforts to be transparent with the records we have. But after all we can publish, our members are sometimes left with basic questions that cannot be resolved by study. That is the Church history version of opposition in all things. Some things can only be learned by faith. Our ultimate reliance must be faith in the witness we have received from the Holy Ghost. God rarely infringes on the agency of any of His children by intervening against some for the relief of others. But He does ease the burdens of our afflictions and strengthen us to bear them, as He did for Alma's people in the land of Helam. He does not prevent all disasters, but He does answer our prayers as he did with the uniquely powerful cyclone 
that threatened to prevent the dedication of the temple in Fiji. Or he does blunt their effects, as he did with the terrorist bombing that took so many lives in the Brussels airport, but only injured our four missionaries. Through all mortal opposition, we have God's assurance that he will consecrate our afflictions for our gain. We have also been taught to understand our mortal experiences and his commandments in the context of his great plan of salvation, which tells us the purpose of life and gives us the assurance of a Savior, in whose name I testify of the truth of these things, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just a few months before the death of the Prophet Joseph Smith, he met with the Twelve Apostles to talk about the greatest needs the Church was facing in that very difficult time. He told them, We need the temple more than anything else. Surely today in these trying times, each of us and our families need the temple more than anything else. During a recent temple dedication, I was thrilled with the entire experience. I loved the open house, greeting many of the visitors who came to see the temple, the cultural celebration with the vibrancy and excitement of the youth, followed by the wonderful dedicatory sessions. The spirit was sweet. Many people were blessed. And then the next morning, my wife and I entered the baptismal font to participate in baptisms for some of our own ancestors. As I raised my arm to begin the ordinance, I was nearly overcome by the power of the Spirit. I realized again that the real power of the temple is in the ordinances. As the Lord has revealed, the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood is found in the temple and its ordinances, For therein are the keys of the holy priesthood ordained, that you may receive honor and glory. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. This promise is for you and for your family. Our responsibility is to receive that which our Father offers. For unto him that receiveth it shall be given more abundantly, even power, power to receive all that he can and will give us now and eternally, power to become sons and daughters of God, to know the powers of heaven, to speak in His name, and to receive the power of His Spirit. These powers become available personally to each one of us through the ordinances and covenants of the temple. Nephi saw our day in his great vision. I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God that it descended upon the saints of the Church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. I had the privilege recently of being in a temple open house with President Russell M. Nelson and his family as he gathered them around the ceiling altar and explained to them that everything we do in the Church, every meeting, activity, lesson, and service, is to prepare each of us to come to the temple and kneel at the altar to receive all the Father's promised blessings for eternity.
As we feel the blessings of the temple in our own lives, our hearts turn to our families, both living and dead. Recently, I witnessed a three-generation family participate in baptisms together for their ancestors. Even the grandmother participated, though she had some trepidation about going under the water herself. As she emerged from the water and hugged her husband, she had tears of joy. The grandfather and father then baptized each other and many of the grandchildren. What greater joy could a family experience together? Each temple has a family priority time to allow you as a family to schedule time in the baptistry. Shortly before his death, President Joseph F. Smith received the vision of the redemption of the dead. He taught that those who are in the spirit world are fully dependent upon the ordinances that we receive on their behalf. The scripture reads, The dead who repent will be redeemed through obedience to the ordinances of the house of God. We receive the ordinances in their behalf, but they make and are held accountable for each covenant associated with each ordinance. Surely the veil is thin for us and parts completely for them in the temple. What, then, is our personal responsibility to be engaged in this work, both as patrons and as workers? The Prophet Joseph Smith taught the Saints in 1840 that, quote, "...considerable exertion must be made, and means will be required, and as the work to build the temple must be hastened in righteousness, it behooves the Saints to weigh the importance of these things in their minds, and then take such steps as are necessary to carry them into operation." and arming themselves with courage, resolve to do all they can, and feel themselves as much interested as though the whole labor depended on themselves alone." In the book of Revelation we read, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Can't you just see in your mind's eye those who serve in the temple today? There are more than 120,000 ordinance workers in the 150 operating temples around the world. Yet there is opportunity for even more to have this sweet experience. When President Gordon B. Hinckley announced the concept of many smaller temples throughout the world, he taught that, quote, all ordinance workers would be local people who would serve in other capacities in their wards and stakes, end quote. Normally, workers are called to serve for two to three years, with the possibility of extending beyond. It is not intended that once you are called, you will stay as long as you are able. Many long-serving workers carry their love for the temple with them as they are released and allow other new workers to serve. Nearly 100 years ago, Apostle John A. Widso taught, quote, We need more workers to accomplish this wonderful work. We need more converts to temple work drawn from all ages. The time has come in this new temple movement to bring into active service all the people of all ages. Temple work is of as much benefit to the young and the active as it is to the aged who have laid behind them many of the burdens of life. 
The young man needs his place in the temple even more than his father and his grandfather, who are steadied by a life of experience. And the young girl, just entering life, needs the spirit, influence, and direction that come from participating in the temple ordinances." In many temples, temple presidents are welcoming newly called and endowed missionaries, young men and women, to serve for just a short time as ordinance workers before going to the MTC. These young people are not only blessed to serve, but they enhance the beauty and spirit for all serving in the temple. I asked a number of young men and women who have served before and after their missions to share their feelings. They used phrases like the following to describe their experience in the temple. Quote, when I serve in the temple, I feel a sense of being closer to my Father and the Savior. I feel complete peace and happiness. I have a feeling of being home. I receive sacredness, power, and strength. I feel the importance of my sacred covenants. The temple has become a part of me. Those whom we serve are close during the ordinances. It gives me the strength to overcome temptations, and the temple has changed my life forever." Serving in the temple is a rich and powerful experience for people of all ages. Even some newly married couples are serving together. President Nelson has taught service in the temple is a sublime activity for a family. As ordinance workers, in addition to receiving ordinances for your ancestors, you can also officiate in ordinances for them. As Wilfred Woodruff said, What greater calling can any man or woman have on the face of the earth than to hold in his or her hands power and authority to go forth and administer in the ordinances of salvation? You become an instrument in the hands of God in the salvation of that soul. There is nothing given to the children of men that is equal to it. He continues, The sweet whisperings of the Holy Spirit will be given to you, and the treasures of heaven, the communion of angels, will be added from time to time. This is worth all you or I can sacrifice during the few years we have to spend hearing the flesh. President Monson recently reminded us that the blessings of the temple are priceless. No sacrifice is too great. Come to the temple. Come often. Come with and for your family. Come and help others to come, too. What are these which are arrayed in white? My brothers and sisters, you are they. You who have received the ordinances of the temple, who have kept your covenants even by sacrifice, and you who are helping your families find the blessings of temple service, and who have helped others along the way. Thank you for your service. I testify that each temple is His holy, sacred house, and that therein each of us may learn and know the powers of godliness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. A week ago was Easter. And our thoughts were focused again on the atoning sacrifice and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This past year, I've been thinking and pondering about the resurrection more than normal. Nearly one year ago, our daughter Elisa died. 
She had struggled with cancer for almost eight years, with several surgeries, many different treatments, exciting miracles, and deep disappointments. We watched her physical condition deteriorate as she came to the close of her mortal life. It was excruciating to see that happen to our precious daughter, that bright-eyed little baby who had grown up to be a talented, wonderful woman, wife, and mother. I thought my heart would break. Last Easter, a little over a month before she passed away, Elisa wrote, Easter is a reminder of all that I hope for for myself, that someday I will be healed and someday I will be whole. Someday I won't have any metal or plastic inside of me. Someday my heart will be free of fear and my mind free of anxieties. I'm not praying for that, that this happens soon, but I'm so glad I truly believe in a beautiful afterlife. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures the very things Elisa hoped for and instills in each of us a reason for the hope that is in us. President Gordon B. Hinckley referred to the resurrection as the greatest of all events in the history of mankind. The resurrection is brought to pass by the Atonement of Jesus Christ and is pivotal to the great plan of salvation. We are spirit children of heavenly parents. When we come to this earth life, our spirit is united with our body. We experience all the joys and challenges associated with mortal life. When a person dies, their spirit is separated from their body. Resurrection makes it possible for a person's spirit and body to be united again. Only this time, that body will be immortal and perfect, not subject to pain, disease, or other problems. After resurrection, the spirit will never again be separated from the body because the Savior's resurrection brought total victory over death. In order to obtain our eternal destiny, we need to have this immortal soul, a spirit and body, united forever, with spirit and immortal body inseparably connected we can receive a fullness of joy. In fact, without the resurrection, we could never receive a fullness of joy, but would be miserable forever. Even faithful, righteous people view the separation of their bodies from their spirits as captivity. We are released from this captivity through the resurrection, which is redemption from the bands or chains of death. There is no salvation without both our spirit and our body. Each of us has physical, mental, and emotional limitations and weaknesses. These challenges, some of which seem so intractable now, will eventually be resolved. None of these problems will plague us after we are resurrected. Elisa researched survival rates for persons with the type of cancer she had, and the numbers were not encouraging. She wrote, But there is a cure, so I'm not scared. Jesus has already cured my cancer and yours.
We can replace the word cancer with any of the other physical, mental, or emotional ailments we may face. Because of the resurrection, they have already been cured, too. The miracle of resurrection, the ultimate cure, is beyond the power of modern medicine, but it's not beyond the power of God. We know it can be done because the Savior is resurrected and will bring to pass the resurrection of each of us, too. The resurrection of the Savior proves that He is the Son of God and that what He taught is real. He is risen, as He said. There could be no stronger proof of His divinity than Him coming forth from the grave with an immortal body. We know of witnesses to the resurrection in New Testament times. In addition to the women and men we read about in the Gospels, the New Testament assures us that hundreds actually saw the resurrected Lord. And the Book of Mormon tells of many hundreds more. The multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side, and they did see with their eyes and did feel with their hands and did know of a surety and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. To those ancient witnesses are added witnesses in the latter days. In fact, in the opening scene of this dispensation, Joseph Smith saw the resurrected Savior with the Father. Living prophets and apostles have testified of the reality of the resurrected living Christ. So we may say, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And each of us can be part of a cloud of witnesses who knows through the power of the Holy Ghost that what we celebrate on Easter actually happened, that the resurrection is real. The reality of the resurrection of the Savior overwhelms our heartbreak with hope because with it comes the assurance that all the other promises of the gospel are just as real, promises that are no less miraculous than the resurrection. We know He has the power to cleanse us from all our sins. We know He has taken upon Himself all our infirmities, pains, and the injustices we have suffered. We know that He has risen from the dead with healing in His wings. We know that He can make us whole no matter what is broken in us. We know that He shall wipe away all tears from our eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. We know that we can be made perfect through Jesus who wrought out this perfect atonement if we will just have faith and follow Him. Toward the end of the inspiring oratorio Messiah, Handel put to beautiful music the Apostle Paul's words that rejoice over the resurrection. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for the blessings that are ours because of the atonement and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who've laid a child in the grave, or wept over the casket of a spouse, or grieved over the death of a parent or someone they loved, the resurrection is a source of great hope. What a powerful experience it will be to see them again, not just as spirits, but with resurrected bodies. I long to see my mother again and feel her gentle touch and look into her loving eyes. I want to see my father smile and hear his laugh and see him as a resurrected, perfect being. With an eye of faith, I picture Elisa completely beyond the reach of any earthly troubles or any sting of death, a resurrected, perfected Elisa, victorious and with a fullness of joy. A few Easter's ago, she wrote simply, Life through His name, so much hope, always, through everything. I love Easter to remind me. I testify of the reality of the resurrection. Jesus Christ lives, and because of Him, we will all live again. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Brothers and sisters, dear friends, as we come to the conclusion of this wonderful General Conference, we express sincere appreciation and extend our blessings to all who have worked so diligently to prepare for these services. We thank those who have spoken and those who have provided the uplifting music. Our concluding speaker for this session will be Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Following his remarks, the choir will close this conference by singing, Sing, We Now at Parting. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Shane M. Bone of the Seventy, and this general conference will be adjourned. Brothers and sisters, do you have any idea? Do you have any notion or inkling whatsoever of how much we love you? For ten hours, you watch fixed on one face at this pulpit sequentially. But for those same ten hours, those of us seated behind this pulpit are fixed on you. You thrill us to the center of our soul. whether that's the 21,000 here in the conference center or multitudes in meeting houses and chapels or finally millions around the globe in homes in some distant location, maybe huddled around a family computer screen. There you are. Here you are. Hour after hour. in your Sunday best, being your best. You sing and you pray wherever you are in the world. You listen and you believe. You are the miracle of this church. And we love you. What a, another remarkable, wonderful general conference we've had. We've especially been blessed by President Monson's presence and his prophetic messages. President, we love you. We pray for you. We thank you. And above all, we sustain you. We're grateful to have been taught by you and your marvelous counselors and so many of our other great men and women leaders who have come to this pulpit. We've heard again and again, always incomparable music 
we've been urgently prayed for and pled with. Truly, the Spirit of the Lord has been here in rich abundance. What an inspirational weekend it has been, again, in every way. Now, I do see a couple of problems. (laughs) One is the fact that I am the only person standing between you and the ice cream you always have ready at the close of General Conference. I feel the weight of that burden. (laughs) The other potential problem is captured in this photo that I saw recently on the Internet. (laughs) Now, my apologies to all the children who are now under the sofa. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is none of us want tomorrow or the day after that to destroy the wonderful feelings we have had this weekend. We want to hold fast to the spiritual impressions we've had and the inspired teachings we have heard. But it's inevitable that after heavenly moments in our lives, we of necessity return to earth, so to speak where sometimes less-than-ideal circumstances again face us. Paul warned us of this when he wrote, Call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction. That post-illumination affliction can come in many ways, and it can come to all of us. Surely every missionary who has ever served soon realized that life in the field wasn't going to be quite like the rarefied atmosphere of the Missionary Training Center. So, too, for all of us, upon leaving a sweet session in the temple or concluding a particularly spiritual sacrament meeting. Remember that when Moses came down from his singular experience on Mount Sinai, He found his people had corrupted themselves, it said, and had turned aside quickly. There they were, at the foot of the mountain, busily fashioning a gold calf to worship, in the very hour that Jehovah, at the summit of the mountain, had been telling Moses, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Moses was not happy with his flock of wandering Israelites that day. During his earthly ministry, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration, where the scriptures say, His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. The heavens opened. Ancient prophets came, and God the Father spoke. After such a celestial experience, what does Jesus come down the mountain to find? Well, first, an argument between his disciples and their antagonists 
over a failed blessing administered to a young boy. Then he tried to convince the twelve, unsuccessfully it turns out, that he would soon be delivered up to local rulers who would kill him. Then someone reminded that a tax was due, which was forthrightly paid. Then he had to rebuke some of the brethren because they were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. All of this led him to say, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? He had occasion to ask that question more than once during his ministry. No wonder he longed for the prayerful solitude of mountaintops. Realizing that we all have to come down from peak experiences to deal with the regular vicissitudes of life, may I offer this encouragement as General Conference concludes. First of all, if in the days ahead you see not only limitations in those around you, but also find elements in your own life that don't yet measure up to the messages you've heard this weekend, Please don't be cast down in spirit and don't give up. The gospel, the church, these wonderful semi-annual gatherings are intended to give hope and inspiration. They're not intended to discourage you. Only the adversary, the enemy of us all, would try to convince us that the ideals outlined in General Conference are depressing and unrealistic that people don't really improve, that no one really progresses. And why does Lucifer give that speech? Because he knows he can't improve. He can't progress. That world's without end, he will never have a bright tomorrow. He's a miserable man, bound by eternal limitations, and he wants you to be miserable too. Well, don't fall for that. With the gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the strength of heaven to help us, we can improve. And the great thing about the gospel is we get credit for trying, even if we don't always succeed. When there was a controversy in the early church regarding who was entitled to heaven's blessings and who wasn't, the Lord declared to the prophet Joseph Smith, Verily I say unto you, the gifts of God are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep my commandments and for them that seeketh so to do. Boy, aren't we all thankful for that added provision? (laughs) And seeketh so to do. That's been a lifesaver because sometimes... That's all we can offer. We take some solace in the fact that if God were to reward only the perfectly faithful, he wouldn't have much of a distribution list. Please, please remember tomorrow and all the days after that that the Lord blesses those who want to improve who accept the need for commandments and try to keep them, who cherish Christ-like virtues and strive 
to the best of their ability to acquire them. If you stumble in that pursuit, so does everyone. The Savior is there to help you keep going. If you fall, summon his strength. Call out like Alma, oh Jesus, have mercy on me. He'll help you get back up. He'll help you repent and repair and fix whatever you have to fix and keep going. Soon enough, you'll have the success that you seek. As you desire of me, so it shall be done unto you, the Lord has declared. Put your trust in that spirit which leadeth to do good, yea, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously, then whatsoever you desire of me in righteousness, you shall receive. I love that doctrine. It says again and again and again that we're going to be blessed for our desire to do good even as we actually strive to be so. And it reminds us that to qualify for those blessings, we must make certain we do not deny them to others. We are to deal justly, never unjustly, never unfairly. We're to walk humbly, never arrogantly, never pridefully. We're to judge righteously, never self-righteously or unrighteously. My brothers and sisters, the first great commandment of all eternity is to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. That's the first great commandment. But the first great truth of all eternity is that God loves us with all of his heart, might, mind and strength. That love is the foundation stone of eternity. And it should be the foundation stone of our daily life. Indeed, it is only with that reassurance burning in our soul that we can have the confidence to keep trying to improve, keep seeking forgiveness for our sins, and keep extending that grace to our neighbor. President George Q. Cannon once taught, No matter how serious the trial, how deep the distress, how great the affliction, God will never desert us. He never has and he never will. He cannot do it. It is not his character to do so. He will always stand by us. We may pass through the fiery furnace. We may pass through deep waters. But we shall not be consumed nor overwhelmed. We shall emerge from all these trials and these difficulties, the better and the purer for them. Now, with that majestic devotion, ringing from heaven as the great constant in our lives, manifested most purely and perfectly in the life, death, and atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we can escape the consequences of both sin and stupidity, our own or that of others, in whatever form they may come to us in the course of daily living. If we give our heart to God, if we love the Lord Jesus Christ, if we do the best we can to live the gospel, then tomorrow and every other day is ultimately going to be magnificent, even if we don't always recognize it as such. Why? Because our Heavenly Father wants it to be. He wants to bless us. A rewarding, abundant, and eternal life is the very object of his merciful plan for his children. It is a plan predicated on the truth that all things work together for good to them that love God. So keep loving. Keep trying. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Keep growing. Heaven is cheering you on today, tomorrow, and forever. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard, Isaiah cried, God giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. They that wait upon him shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. For the Lord God will hold their right hand, saying unto them, Fear not, I will help thee. Brothers and sisters, may a loving Father in heaven... Bless us tomorrow to remember how we felt today. May he bless us to strive with patience and persistence toward the ideals we have heard and heard proclaimed this conference weekend, knowing that his divine love and unfailing help will be with us even when we struggle. No, will be with us especially when we struggle. If gospel standards seem high and the personal improvement needed in the days ahead seems out of reach, remember Joshua's encouragement to his people when they faced a daunting future. Sanctify yourselves, he said, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. I declare that same promise. It is the promise of this conference. It is the promise of this church. It is the promise of him who performs those wonders, who is himself Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Of him 
I bear witness. Of him, I am a witness. And to him, this conference stands as a testament of his ongoing work in this great latter day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Our Father in heaven, we love thee and we love thy Son, Jesus Christ. We are grateful for thy plan of happiness. We have been instructed today, we have been edified and sanctified by the power of the Holy Ghost, and pray that we may now go forward and bind ourselves in all holiness before thee. We pray, Father, that we may choose the that we may always choose the ride, the tougher ride or the harder ride as thou hast instructed us through our wonderful prophet, President Thomas Monson, in the name of Jesus Christ.